listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. as I was driving to uh, this sitting tonight um, uh, this great line from a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta The Pirates of Penzance and that there is this uh, this line that this band of pirates uh, sing what we ask is life without a touch of poetry in it. And I don't know why that was just kind of floating through my head and everything. And, and I was thinking, isn't that the truth? Isn't it, isn't it neat that whatever prose we can write about this stuff, you know, um, or, you know, this stuff meaning Dharma, this stuff meaning, you know, meditative experience, uh, enlightenment, uh, whatever. It always misses the mark slightly. Poets get closer, you know? Making sure that each of us adds a little poetry to our experience that we enable um, the gifts that others have bestowed upon, you know, the, the literary world. It, it just really helps us get out of our own way. And that's kind of just, I just want to make sure that there is a, a, a sense in your practice that the divine has been touched by mere mortals for thousands of years. There is stuff that has been written down that you don't have to subscribe to but that can offer openings. And I just want to kind of, kind of encourage that. Take some piece of beautiful poetry this week and just read it and let it sit for a while and then read it again. See if it points you in any direction. If you need any recommendations, especially in spiritual, in spiritual realm, I'm a huge fan of Rumi. Okay, I don't think there's anybody who... Uh, can tickle us quite as beautifully as Rumi can when it comes to kissing the face of God. I mean, he just does a great job. Just a great job. Um, I would also recommend that um, a simple practice in addition to just kind of taking on a piece of poetry is making sure that you put yourself into a situation where laughter can occur. Now, some of us in this room um, find humor in just about everything, okay? And as long as that's an authentic recognition, I think that's marvelous. But if ever we use humor to hide from what's actually going on, then it's a crutch. Similarly, if we use poetry as a way of escaping from where we are, it's a crutch. Rather than helping us get out of the way of the universe's great call 
we actually put up a block, believe it or not. As a former stand-up comic, now of course a sit-down comic, um, I found that most of the men and women that I worked with on any type of regular basis uh, were incredibly bound egoically. That their humor was their defense mechanism. They couldn't face the pain of life, so they joked about it. Now there are a lot, a lot of really, uh, you know, comparatively speaking, a lot, a lot of ways that are a lot less healthy than that, you know. Um, but you know, finding finding humor as a way of escaping our discomfort or dissatisfaction doesn't help us necessarily get at dissatisfaction's roots. So put yourself in a position where um, you can allow yourself to be tickled by the infinite. And here again, if I'm going to give up a recommendation, um, I recommend watching The Hangover. Uh, one of the funniest things I've seen in quite some time, and I'm just recommending it. Um, I'm, please do not expect a great piece of, shall we say, cinematography or filmography. But damn it, it's funny. It's just right down the line. Very funny film. <laughs> and I know several of you are going to just get on the Netflix. You're going to stream the thing and go, I'm never going to infinite smile again. <laughs> so poetry, laughter, and love. Make sure sometime, I'm just giving you three practices just to kind of tease you here a little bit. Make sure you are in a space where you can recognize the felt sense of love that's coming at you. Even in the midst of heartbreak, it's there. That the natural felt sense of being is joy, an embodied joy is another way of explaining love. You are loved. You have love to give. You can receive it. You can be a conduit for the most natural expression of being there is. And so one of the things that, uh, easy practice, is making sure that you silently, and please make sure it's silent because people will think you're strange, you just tell people that you love them as you see them on the street. You know, silently again, please. You know, I love you. Oh, you think that's weird? <laughs> Screw you. I don't love you now. <laughs> but just constantly kind of recognizing, recognizing that you love that you have that ability, that there's always more space for more love. And then, the minute you get someone, this is where it gets a little bit more difficult, when you get someone in your day 
who suddenly creates a certain sense of non-love. You've just been given this amazing gift because they have just given you a sense of, of what it means to touch the contours of your own ego. Whatever you don't love is simply ego. Imagine what it would be like if you could learn to love your own ego from an unattached place. If you could actually accept totally what it means to embody this thing called self and be okay. That allows you to then simultaneously share that opening with others. It allows for you to be with the most difficult people in your life in the tenderest of ways. So my recommendation is making sure you find at least someone who puts you into hell. Even if it's just for a moment. And recognize that they're doing the best they can. And also know that ego is going to jump right in there and say, yeah, well, they need to do better, you know, or something like that. And then at that point, you have the chance to look at ego within and say, and I love you too. What these three little practices will do is change your life. (laughs) That's all. And it might be in really, really small little ways at first, but letting the world know that you love it for all of its madness, in spite and because of its craziness, its violence, its beauty, its teaching, you love it. You love it so much that you're able to loosen the screws a little bit enough to laugh at the most mundane stuff ever. That there is space enough to laugh. That life is much more with a touch of poetry in it. Break out the books. You know, listen, contemporary or ancient, doesn't matter. But just being able to tap into where the poets are pointing. So tonight as we sit, can we be that poem? Can we be that, that love? Can we be all of that stuff? Can we be the humor? Now, I'm recommending you not crack up during meditation, if you can help it. Shall we sit? In one taste, Ken Wilbur writes, Transcendence restores humor. Spirit restores humor. Suddenly, smiling returns. 
too many representatives of too many movements, even many very good movements such as feminism, environmentalism, meditation, spiritual studies, seem to lack humor altogether. In other words, they lack lightness. They lack distance from themselves, a distance from the ego and its grim game of forcing others to conform to its contours. There is self-transcending humor, or there is the game of egoic power. No wonder Mencken wrote that, quote, every third American devotes himself to improving and lifting up his fellow citizens, usually by force. This messianic delusion is our national disease, unquote. We have chosen egoic power and politically correct thought police, grim Victorian reformers pretending to be defending civil rights, messianic new paradigm thinkers who are going to save the planet and heal the world. They should all trade two pounds of ego for one ounce of laughter. I went to a conference this last uh, weekend wherein uh, uh, the author of that, Ken Wilbur, and uh, was working with Terry Patton. They pumped him in via... Uh, speakerphone and so forth, and it was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting experience. Um, and I would encourage each and every one of you to go take advantage of the fact that you live in the Bay Area. There's so many great teachers, events, and happenings going on that can really help to support a deepening spiritual practice, uh, and that it's not, you know, just me that you're listening to. It's, uh, in fact, a wide variety of uh, people, many of whom I, I just think are doing amazing, amazing things. Um, but this idea of humor, kind of, that, that we've been touching on, this, this idea of uh, freedom, of joy, shows up in a couple of different ways. And what I wanted to do tonight was walk you through, just explain some of the... Uh, uh, things that kind of infinite smile organizes itself or orients itself around um, and some some terms and so forth. So this may feel a little college lectury. I apologize if that's the case. Uh, but I did want to kind of go through this and, and I'm going to actually use the uh, um, going to use the uh, tablet here. What would you call that? I always use a whiteboard like when I'm when I'm teaching people. That's not really a whiteboard. Is it easel? Whatever, okay. What you can see here is um, uh, basically the way... Can everybody see this? We good? What we have here is the, the logo, okay? Yeah. We have here kind of the logo uh, for our sangha, and um, it, it kind of showed up in, and continues to show up in kind of neat ways in that it, it illustrates kind of the spiritual path. It's kind of a neat little map that everybody can kind of, you know, uh, throw into their mind. Um, I start here uh, wanting to, to just explain kind of levels of consciousness um, that we experience all the time, okay? And that you may experience in meditative uh, work um, certainly you experience it every 24 hours in your circadian rhythm, your, your sleep cycles and so forth. And so what I'll do is I'll just walk you through. Basically, we, um, we have our gross, gross level awareness. Okay. This is what you're experiencing right now. Everyone in this room is hearing my voice. 
or you've, you're hearing an internal voice that's criticizing my voice or something like that. You've, you're in this space right now, okay? The lighting, the temperature, you know, the, the hum, the, you know, the, the body that you're in right now, all is being experienced in this what we might call waking state or gross state. All right? Make sense? We then go into the subtle state, our subtle space. And that's just a name for thought. So everybody here has the capacity to analyze and to think, to metacognate, think about thinking. It's one of the neat things about being, you know, born into this, this precious body of ours. We can metacognate, we can think about thinking, okay? Dreaming itself, okay? Dreaming itself occurs in this subtle space. Visions that you might have, subtle space. Okay, and um, we then, from this subtle space, go into what we call causal. Okay, causal, and uh, causal would be the witness. The witness in this causal space can actually watch their thoughts. They can notice their feelings. They can notice what's happening. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, what I should say is the witness allows us to do all of this noticing, all of this seeing. Okay? All right? It is the seer. All right? We then get into a real interesting space that we call the non-dual. The non-dual is neither this nor that, neither up nor down, neither right nor wrong. It is actually the source, then, of all that is causal, the source of the witness. Okay? And this gets tricky. All right? And yet it's something that is really, really quite powerful. Okay? So, in real basic terms, you can see this is how we live each day, I would say that you have the gross level awareness in uh, kind of your waking space, okay? In your dream space during REM, okay? REM sleep, you're having subtle experiences, okay? And then you also have the causal space in dreamless sleep, okay? In dreamless sleep, we're in a, we're in a spaciousness where we have um, the ability believe it or not, to begin to still be aware of what's going on, okay? This takes some time uh, as your meditation practice begins to stabilize and so forth. This is just this amazing experience that kind of shows up for people um, where they are able to witness not only their dreaming, okay, but they can also witness what's going on in dreamless sleep. Now, this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with awakening per se, but it is nonetheless something that's quite powerful, Alright? What do we have here in this non-dual space? The non-dual space is the awareness that permeates all of it. Okay? It's really, really fascinating that there is, in fact, this awareness, it seems, among all things. Okay? Among all things. And we dance together up here in this headspace, okay, as a collective. Okay, as a group, as a sangha. Okay, there are also some um, 
fancy names, we, I guess one of the things I kind of wanted to point out here is that, that the non-dual actually represents the paper that this is written on, as well as the ink, as well as the idea, as well as everything else. It's kind of the source of everything. It's like when we look at awareness itself, okay, when we look at awareness itself, we begin to see that our awareness of our own awareness, okay, is consciousness, all right? I know that it sounds like I'm going wordplay on you. I'm not trying to do that at all. I'm actually just trying to point out that when we start looking at our awareness, okay, we start becoming deeply aware. We start actually looking at our, our spaciousness uh, in the world as being built uh, on these structures. We can start to not only see the world but experience the world in a slightly different way. Okay? And so meditatively, what happens is... Um, we begin to kind of ascend outside of each of these levels into the, the, next, the next level the more we sit still, the more we integrate stillness into our life, and we tend to fixate at certain places on that map right there, um, especially if we have insight. If you have suddenly an insight experience at the gross level, okay, um, and you, you, uh, you know, you th- it's like, oh, I got it, you know. Here I was in Yosemite, and I was just, I was looking at Half Dome, and suddenly it's like the heavens and everything just kind of opened up. It was the most beautiful thing for me. Yeah, that's all really, that's well and good, and it's very powerful and very beautiful, but it's a gross level awakening. And it tends to, uh, and we tend to cling to those experiences and because they're born in time, they end in time, they're temporary, they're just experiences, they've pointed us in a direction that can take, in some respects, years to undo. A very common one is that actually at the subtle level when um, people have satori. Okay, in the Zen tradition, that's, you know, the, if you will, one of the goals is to sit there and sit there and sit there until suddenly, ah, oh, 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 there we go. All right. Now I got it. Well, the I is still really powerful at the subtle level because we're talking, we're at the level of mind. So you have an insight, for instance, at the gross level, staring at half dome, or at the subtle level, at Satori. If you can't unpack it from that point, okay, if you don't have a Sangha, a teaching, and a teacher that can really actually help to support it and help to stabilize it, we tend to fixate at that subtle level. Same thing goes with the causal. Okay, if it's just witness, if we just stay there at witnessing, witnessing awareness, we can have these really beautiful experiences and so forth that transcend, you know, body and mind, but there's even further to go. You understand what I'm saying? So it's really cool to continue, and indeed, I, I would argue, incredibly important to continue with practice, no matter how powerful your insight might be, no matter on what level. You have a non-dual insight Okay, at the non-dual level where it's just space, body-mind dropped and everything else, what happens here is causal formlessness, the subtle level, and the gross level are all radically enhanced by an insight up at that, up at those, uh, you know, at that higher level. Okay? Cultural contexts make a difference too. You can have a non-dual insight as a Christian, as a Hindu, as a Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, 
okay? It does not matter. Whatever flavor ice cream you like, that's all good. But what really matters is that we're able to kind of, kind of recontextualize this in a way that allows for the insight to, to support everything it's junior, okay? Everything at, at, at any and all junior levels. Um, when we stop meditating, okay, like I said, we can fixate. We can also undermine what the realization can show us. Okay? And realization can show us all sorts of different stuff at different levels. Okay? There isn't one particular thing that any, any of us are going after okay? um, uh, insight-wise. But what we do kind of come away with as, as our meditation deepens is the recognition that we are all totally free and totally full. So, um, I kind of wanted to just throw this out there. And let you know that my um, bias uh, as a teacher and my bias in as far as kind of the teaching that I keep throwing out into the Sangha is that it's far more important for us to ground ourselves in this awareness okay, than it is for us to fight to become something. It's more important to be than it is to become. The becoming will take care of itself. If we can rest in being, if we can begin to quite literally take this work very, very seriously, you know, um, with smiles, of course, uh, if we can take it very, very seriously, we can, in essence, allow for this being to be able to inform any spontaneous becoming that might end up evolving out of us. It's a very natural thing for that to happen. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is the conference that I was at this last weekend um, it didn't go over the top, but I, I, have, I have been in the space where it was all about the next moment. It was all about the emergent consciousness that's showing up. It's about, and that's exactly what egos love. And so what we can run into, the, the potential dangers as I see it in a lot of contemporary spiritual movements is that they lose sight of being and lean way into becoming and when we are all about becoming, when we're all about being all that we can be, but turning it into a quasi-militaristic push, we can lose sight and indeed lose the inspiration of what meditative awareness or what stillness has to offer each and every single one of us as we uh, kind of uh, move along the path. I know this is kind of weird, but I'd like to break for questions, actually. Where are you with this? Um, I, again, like I, I told you in the beginning, I, I'm not giving you a typical Dharma talk here. I'm kind of explaining structures. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think this is important is just knowing that the structures are there sets you up. It sets you up for, for kind of maybe thinking about this, this work a little differently. Yes, Stan. Earlier, um, you mentioned 
you asked this, who, who feels our feelings mm-hmm. inside our body? Mm-hmm. And, and so is that, is that the gross awareness that feels sensations in the body? I would say the sensations that you experience in the body are at the gross level. The, 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 um, the sensing of those sensations would come from the causal. It's the witness. Okay? So that's why what we're trying to do all the time is recognize that that witness there in the causal realm is always available. It's always available. It's always you know, it's, it's always available to us. It's never not there. It's the, it's the one thing we can't escape. As opposed to, wait, I don't have access to the witness. No. You never are apart from access. It is, in fact, who you are. I don't know if that helps or... or yeah. If you can watch the emotion, the watcher of that emotion is coming from the causal realm. And, and what's really cool about that is that this, this causal space, this witnessing space that's aware of our experience is free. The Hindi term for it is turiya. It's free. And then the source of turiya, the source of that freedom, this complete and total fullness, okay, it's Turiyatita, all right? And when Turiyatita is experienced as kind of this through line for all, all of our states of consciousness, the source, it's, it, it's not, uh, words get crazy here. Um, and of course, it's my job as teacher to articulate it, and I'm screwing up, but, uh, so fire me. Uh, the, uh, the, the situation that, that kind of engulfs us is this recognition that we are at once, like I said, totally free and totally fulfilled in every single moment, okay? And anything that is not feeling totally free or totally fulfilled is coming from a more contracted space, right? Which can still be observed from a more expansive space. We get to a place where we quite literally meet the world as a bring it. Come on, bring it. I'm here for all of it as it is. That's tremendous humor that can unfold can unfold in that space. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Um, okay. You you bring up uh, the effort that it requires mm-hmm. to to you know everybody seems to come into meditation or anything with a kind of I'm going to go get them mentality and and it seems like that efforts. Uh, it needs to be there in order to actually sit on your butt for, you know, this many hours or whatever and, and, and ride out the pains and so forth. Mm-hmm. So what do you think makes the difference between um, clinging to the, uh, the mountain climb and, yeah. and actually letting that go when that happens? You know, is, that, is there some part of spiritual practice that, that makes that difference between, you know, Look! Look! I'm a great meditator, and look what I've done, and kind of you know resting on whatever laurels you have, or mm-hmm. whatever fear drives that, and not doing that. I mean, is that humor? What, what's the difference between being able to let that go as you achieve it, and not letting it go but clinging to it? Yeah, we cling to it because we identify with it, and the more we watch that identification, 
the less energy that identification, the less, it, the, it, the less sticky it is. Okay? But why would we identify with it in the first place? Because that's... The whole goal is to let go. The whole energy. goal is to let go, and damn it, I'm hanging on to that goal. <laughs> that's how we get into spiritual work. Every, every one of us, for the most part, gets into spiritual work because something's missing. Right? And damn it, I'm going to find it. And just about every single person in this room is a successful suburbanite. They've done right. Ego's done them well, right? And so what's my message? My message is really kind of anathema to anything that has, has built anything for anybody in this room. And yet there's something that each of us knows. It's kind of like, that's right. So what do we do? Use the drive. You use the drive to get you on your cushion. We actually do develop spine in this. A tremendous courage, a tremendous drive, tremendous fire begins to burn in us. But what happens is, what the ego doesn't realize is that the fire that it's lit will burn everything away. And so there's a very natural, spontaneous point at which it's kind of like, oh. Now at that point, at that exhalation, that deep exhalation, that great peace, that suturing of freedom and fullness, okay? When that kind of happens, there's no more identification with being a great meditator. There's no longer an identification with anything because it's all within us. We identify with precisely everything. Everything arises within us, me. Even though there's no me really to speak of, everything arises and we're there for that dance. Not like a seventh grade dance where the girls are on one side and the guys are on the other and you're always afraid of getting rejected. But just this beautiful cosmic interplay. Right? So we have to have that fire. You have to. You have to want this. And what happens is that wanting ends up dissolving. And is there any fire left in the non-duels? You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. That's a kind of, you know, enigmatic Zen way of saying, hell yeah. Yeah, this, with, I mean, there's tons of passion in this. You have a lot of really deeply realized people that are full of passion. My concern is that that passion turns into something that goes toward something. We get spiritual bypass on the part of every one of that teacher's students. Where, in other words, they go up the mountain partway, they recognize the passion, I'll hang on to that, they go around, and then go back down the mountain thinking, I did it. You've got to taste the chocolate. You have to have that drive. You have to be willing to sit still. You have to be willing to go through full awareness of all these raw, dangerous emotions that come up, right? And you have to be right there with it. Because what happens is, they burn themselves out. And we're watching from that causal witness the whole time. And we're recognizing that, you know what? Everything arises and ceases. Everything is temporary. Everything, everything is dependent on the way I look at it. There's infinite choice. And when there's choice, there's freedom. Right? And as we begin to allow for this flow to occur, we start recognizing that there's a source to the witness. We turn around and recognize that there's nothing behind the witness, the witness itself has no face, and suddenly we realize that all things are arising 
Everything arises within this very awareness. Everything. Therefore, everything arises within us. There's nothing missing. Yeah. So use that. Use that fire. Use that desire. You know, it'll take care of itself. The becoming will take care of itself. If we ground ourselves in that being. Okay. And then, I mean, another way of looking at this is if we look at awakening as being this simultaneous, full-on stabilized recognition of freedom and fulfillment and this compulsion to give it away. You know? We, we, then, we then teach. You know, we then become this divine offering all the time. We share totally. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, what were some of the paradoxes or contradictions that you um, kind of struggled with or thought about deeply in your practice over the years? Just some things that were just, you know, hard for you to wrap your brain around. You know, just the, the, contra- the paradoxes and the contradictions. Yeah, the biggest one was... How if if this is all about peace, you know, this is all about stillness and so forth, you know, how do I combine that with feeling a compulsion to engage in a, in the world, you know, um, in a way that's helpful? If there's no self, then nothing matters. And if nothing matters, I'm, I'm just going to stay here in this monastery. You know? Let the world fight its own battles. I'm going to stay here. That's a deep egoic attachment, isn't it? And so, so that was one of them. The whole idea of no self. Struggle with that one. If, there's, if there is no self, then, you know... Where, who is it that's experiencing all this incredible emotional pain? If there is no self to look at it in uh, my, you know, inner Jewish way, then, oi, whose arthritis is this? If there's no self, you know, the old cliche. Um, I also struggled mightily with, um, you know, as, especially... I went through a rather extensive monastic stay for a while, and it was, uh, I remember at the end feeling almost numb, so alive and so available that everything kind of hurt and felt. I could feel everything with a much deeper clarity. Imagine it's what it's like for someone who suddenly goes from um, non-sobriety to sobriety. You know? Uh, suddenly, it was. I was just... But at the same time, it's like everything felt so much that I almost felt lost. It was a felt sense as opposed to thinking. It was a felt sense. Um, And then lastly, I I would say, uh, I really struggled with the whole ritual thing. 
I loved aspects of ritual because they were constant reminders for me of how to make the absolute mundane aspects of life totally filled with holy. So I, I, liked, I liked that aspect of, of ritual. Um, what I didn't like was, and what I could never really get my head around, so to speak, was how people, it seemed, became so attached to their kind of path. Whether it was the, the Zen monks I studied with, or the Tibetan monks I studied with, or the forest monks in Thailand I studied with, you know, or the Catholics I hung out with, or the Jews you know, that I grew up with, or the, you know, Muslims that I knew. I mean, whatever, I mean, people just, the, I still, I still am really fascinated by that. And I'm also, I try to be very careful about not doing that here. Because it's not, I don't think it's intellectually responsible. I don't think it's spiritually accurate to say, oh, all religions are saying the same thing. They're not. Period. They're not. And nor are they necessarily doing the same thing. But once you start getting up into the causal and non-dual aspects of any type of philosophical teaching, they're all pointing in exa exactly the same space. You still got to walk the path. I still have to, have to walk the path. But I don't know. I've always, I've always been amazed at how obvious that seems. And yet what a profoundly subtle trap it is to cling to your own sense of what is right and what is not. So that it's constantly, it's a cool thing about what we're doing, I think, is that this is always about questioning. It's about questioning everything that I say, about questioning everything that you read. It's about questioning, not doubting, pushing away, but just really questioning, wondering. And that one word, that verb, to wonder, can actually carry us right through all of those things that tend to trap the mind, that tend to, yeah, certainly for me at least, help me with my struggles. When I start wondering about it, instead of writing scripts about what I knew, is the minute everything started to kind of taste different, differently. on language and, and no language kind of in this practice like describing what's happening but everything I'm all, all the language simply being a metaphor for I'm only speaking on the gross level every time we show up here talking out of a gross level it, I'm talking words themselves are gross level experience subtle level to a certain extent too but but they are a gross level experience. And so that's the challenge of teaching. Because what I and others are trying to do is to help foster not only non-dual realization, but non-dual expression in the world. So a realized person at the non-dual level who recognizes that it's as if they, are, they wake up in the middle of a dream... And if any of you have ever had a lucid dream, you know this to be kind of a kick in the pants. You're in the middle of a lucid dream, and you can play. This happened just the other night. I used to ride a motorcycle. And uh, <laughs> I had this dream that I was riding my motorcycle again. 
and I was riding uh, up on I-80 going towards Tahoe, and there's a stretch, there's a stretch of road there right up towards the summit that's particularly beautiful. And as I was riding in the dream, I realized I was dreaming, and it's like, okay, this is going to be fun. I kicked it into a little bit higher acceleration, and the bike started to fly. And so I was just flying over Donner, Donner Lake, you know, and then I woke up. But it was just, you know, that cool, that cool experience. If you're in the middle of a dream, you realize you're in the middle of a dream, what are you going to do with your life? You're going to live it differently. You're not going to fly on your motorcycle, even though motorcycles can't fly, right? I don't know if that helps at all with your question. And keep in mind that my experience don't don't um, use mine necessarily as a model for you. Well, I went through this in really traditional ways, and I don't know that you have to. Well, that's kind of what prompted uh-huh. me saying the language issue. That's kind of the contradiction that I'm trying to wrap around. You know what Wittgenstein I think said it best at the end of the Tractatus. His great. 80 pages of unfootnoted text that he wrote, basically building, tearing apart philosophy. You know, he basically said, you know, the final, the final, final is there's some things we just can't talk about. And indeed, non-dual, we can talk about it, but think about the word, about. We're talking around it. Everything we express is quite literally pointing towards it. It's not it. That wasn't, that wasn't necessarily a huge contradiction you dealt with in your practice. No, not for me. Okay. Not for me personally. No. But I'd be happy to talk to you about it sometime if you want. <laughs> yeah. Are there any defining moments that guide you from one stage to the next? Usually. Experience? Usually. Um, Is it common... Well, I'll give you the, let's go with gross. You, you recognize the gross realm the, the minute you started um, probably somewhere around two years old or one and a half, realizing that, oh my God, if I walk into that table, it hurts. There's suddenly this gross level awareness of boundary, right? The first time you had a dream, we were going into the subtle space. The earliest dream you can remember, bad dream maybe you had. Okay, we're in subtle Causal experience, and in, re- in referring to this practice, that you, the, the gross is, is it's it's the most obvious of all. Have you ever had an experience of um, when I watched my wife give birth to our daughters? There was a gross level awakening in that moment that I, I just I it was just the most amazing thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, subtle level experience. Uh, Satori is a good example of that, you know, that the, the awakening, the awakening event, whatever it might happen to look like for you. I'm giving an extreme example, but in terms of practice, this is a very, very obvious one. Childbirth isn't necessarily a practice that we would have, but sometimes I know people get into really, really cool spaces when they're chanting and so forth. That would be happening during a gross, gross level experience. Causal is when the mind is no longer chattering. It's the space between thought. Right? Pardon? It does happen, huh? Yeah. Yes, Tim. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And in the non-dual, when all of it drops away, and then there's just this 
there's just nothing but this naked, raw awareness. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I guess that's the way I would, I would suggest that we, you know, there might be a way we could map it out a little bit more. But I would also, um, the, the thing that's really important is that you don't cling to anything that I just said or cling to this. Because this may or may not be your experience. And for you to say, you know, what egos typically do is they go, oh, God, I'm never going to get there. This sucks. Just forget it, you know. And that's, that's a horrific, horrific blunder. I'm putting this up there because this can happen. Be inspired. Yeah. Be inspired. <laughs>